Do you manage your own IT for distributed teams in Asia? And you know how painful it is. Esavel helps your in-house team by taking cumbersome tasks off their hands and giving them the tools to manage IT effectively. Get help across eight countries in Asia Pacific from on and offboarding, procuring devices to real-time IT support and device management. With our state-of-the-art platform, gain full control of all your IT infrastructure in one place. Our team of IT support pros are keen to help you grow. So check out esevel.com and get a demo today. Use our referral code ASIA for three months free. Terms and conditions apply. If you look at generative, I think that is fundamentally like a different way that technology came about and it required a lot of investment without knowing what was going to transpire, right? So I've talked to a couple of people who are affiliated with various really top AI labs in China. And I asked them the same question, well, why didn't you guys create this? And the universal answer was basically like, honestly, OpenAI themselves probably had no idea what was going to happen. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the premier podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business technology and media in Asia. I'm Bernard Leung, and the era of COVID-0 is finally over in China. The tech giants in China are now figuring out their next steps after an unprecedented regulatory crackdown in the past three years. With the rise of OpenAI with ChatGPT, how will the Chinese tech giants react? With me today, Rima, creator of TechBus China, and China tech analysts to help us work through where the China tech giants are going. Rima, welcome to the show again. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to be back. So since our last conversation, what have you been up to? I am actually now building up startups with a venture studio here in Silicon Valley. So nice. as an entrepreneur in residence. Yeah. Cool. So I was wondering, since given that we know each other for the past decade, I wanted to know what are the lessons you can share about your career journey for the audience listening out there? Well, I think since we're talking about AI today, I agree with many of the personalities I'm sure you've heard in the media and in the tech field who believe that this is, you know, the new big thing, the next big thing, just as big as the internet or the mobile internet, whichever way you want to look at it. So I would suggest that everyone do not dilly-dally, do not delay, get straight to learning more about this AI business and see how you can incorporate it into your life and career. So mm. it's like, as Lei Jun says, you know, when there is a phone call, right? When there is a trend, even a fake will fly. I think this is one of those really big waves that you really have to take advantage of. Interesting. Moving with the wave. So I want to come to the main subject of the day. We are talking about the China tech giants in a different era. As China has ended their COVID-0 policy this year, what is the mood for startups and the venture capital ecosystem in China now? I think it's actually quite positive, a lot more positive than I personally expected because there's such a discrepancy between how people feel today versus just a few months ago when the lockdown was still in full force. There were lots of visitors from China to Silicon Valley during the winter, right around December, January. Everyone came. By the time they came, most of them had already gotten COVID. So they had gotten COVID, recovered, and then were visiting. And then I think a lot of them have like largely disappeared because now things are so busy in China. They've gone back 
And they're like, even though everything is really interesting here, it's just too busy back home to spend much more time abroad. What about the venture capital ecosystem? Because looking at some of the numbers, the amount of funding they're getting has declined. But is it mainly now done by the LPs from all over the world? Or there's still a lot of the US LPs that are funding the Chinese tech ecosystem? I think it's unclear to me. I do know lots of friends that have uh, effectively told me that they are no longer trying to get US LPs on board for their next fund. And they are trying alternative regions such as Southeast Asia, such as Middle East, which is a particularly popular destination. But, you know, it's a little too early to say. I don't think it's really just Chinese VCs having trouble raising money, by the way. A very prominent Silicon Valley venture capitalist named Ho Nam, actually, uh, who's invested cross-border in US and Korea for a very long time. He was just posting the other day that this is his like 30th fundraise in 27 years or something like that. And he feels that the market is drastically different from before. And that even if you are a venture capitalist with significant track record, be prepared for a lot heavier due diligence. And if you're just starting out, then you better be prepared that this is going to take a lot longer and be a lot tougher to fundraise than just a year ago. Mm. As you have pointed out clearly just now in, in the career lesson side about you know AI now being the most important paradigm that has dawned upon us for the internet. So I'm going to start first with generative AI, given that now is the most important subject that dominates our technology ecosystem, whether it's Silicon Valley or Beijing. My first question will go with the tech giants. I think Baidu has actually released their equivalent of the large language models, LLMs, called Wenxing Yian. And they have a earning chatbot. And then after that, you know, Alibaba also released their equivalent called Tong with the integrations to ThinkTalk. ThinkTalk, if I were to characterize, please correct me if I'm wrong, it's like the equivalent of Slack in China. I think the, my first question probably is, what have we learned from how the Chinese tech giants are looking at generative AI and their applications for the Chinese ecosystem? I think it's very similar to what the U.S. tech giants are considering the implications of AI for their business here, right? So hugely disruptive, believe that it will be a good replacement for a lot of human labor. So a lot of white collar jobs or a lot of white collar tasks may be at risk from the employee's perspective, but from the employer's perspective, there are a lot of productivity gains to be made. So I think that for companies like Baidu with Search, they're looking at, you know, LLMs just as Google is, and they're considering, hey, is this going to completely upend our existing business? And we really need to be staying on top of it to make sure that we don't, you know, get uh, completely <laughs> left behind. Mm. So I think it's really very much the same. And it's a little too early to say for sure. But one of the differences that has been highlighted by Chinese media in particular is that it seems that every Chinese sizable tech company, and sometimes they don't even have to be tech companies, but basically every sizable Chinese tech company is building their own foundational model. And is that really necessary when we haven't seen nearly as much effort by U.S. companies to build foundational models, right? A lot of people are more looking at the, how it applies to their business, but actually leveraging 
models from OpenAI or Google or whatever. Whereas in China, everyone's building their own model. It could be because they believe there is a security issue, trust issue. They believe they need to have their own know-how. Maybe they don't want to be reliant on a third party for what they perceive to be an ongoing a really essential part of the business going forward. Or it could be just as others have pointed out, it could be for PR reasons because it sounds good right now. And if you say you're working on a model, your own model, maybe it'll boost your stock price. <laughs> mm, one key thing I saw spotted is that, like for example, Baidu has been in this space for a very long time because of autonomous driving. And also they have done a lot of work in the AI space itself. Like, for example, think of your early chatbot. Is it very similar like to what the Bing's, the chat GPT4 integration inside? And then when you look at, say, Alibaba's equivalent of Tongyi Tianwen, for example, it's more like integrated towards trying to do a lot of what I call the CR, customer relationship management or CRM. In short, they call it to try to do customer queries. It's more of like a responsive type of AI, which I have already seen it in a couple of years back when I was with Amazon Web Services doing the AI business in Southeast Asia. So I just want to get a better sense of does these applications are very similar or are they, are they still at that very early stage of actually bringing these LLMs into the market? Well, they are similar to what, you know, again, US companies have announced I haven't personally tested these. I haven't gotten an invite code to these, so I can't tell you for sure, but I have looked at videos and reviews of, of the products you're talking about. And again, actually, for example, on Baidu, we wrote a pretty long piece on ErnieBot for our Substack two weeks back. And if, if you look at people who've compared both ChatGPT, again, the ChatGPT's response in Chinese, right? Not in English. Of course, you have to do apples to apples comparison here versus Baidu. You can't actually say that Baidu is necessarily like a much worse performer because I think it's pretty obvious that it's being trained for different purposes. So for commercial use, for doing marketing, for example, rewording things, rewriting things, the earning bot seems to perform quite well for these business applications. But for purely creative applications, if you ask it to make up a story or make up a very nonsensical poem, like a lot of these prompt engineers on the internet are trying to do, then maybe ChatGPT does a little bit better. But Again, the, the, I think the models are fine-tuned for different use cases. So mm. I don't think that it is necessarily that one is a lot worse than the other. I think that, first of all, ChatGPT, when it came out, did have a significant lead in terms of PR. I personally have been a paid, paying user since day one when, when it was released back in February. But again, people use it for different reasons. And it's that's not to say that the models coming out of the tech giants in China are not constantly improving. I have also seen people complain about it, of course, but I think that it's sort of natural that inevitably as these models, which are quite new technologies, right, rub mm -hmm. up against real world use cases, they're going to fall short, right? That's what Sam Altman's constantly saying, that they're going to be disappointing you. <laughs> they're mm. going to do far less than you expect them to be able to do because they are still very far away from AGI. I, I didn't know that the Chinese 
equivalent of ChatGPT like for example those that Baidu and Alibaba are still in like what I call beta mode where you need an invite mm-hmm. to be able to access but what about like ByteDance and Tencent are they coming into the fray of generative AI you know in the US you have Microsoft Amazon and Google now gearing up for the generative AI mindshare in the US they both announced they're working on things ByteDance has actually like it's a little unclear what they're doing because there was news that they were doing a model. Then they said, we're not. Then they said, we are doing some of it for some applications. So it's pretty clear to me, all of these companies consider it to be a very important thing to work on, but not necessarily all of them are going to be making it as front and center as maybe Baidu and Alibaba have. But ByteDance has always sees itself as an AI company. So the surprise is that they haven't been very active in that sense, right? Yeah, I'm not sure you can say that they've not been active. They've just not been saying that they're going, they haven't been as blatant about uh, saying what they're working on. Tencent, on the other hand, has made it very clear that AI is a big part of their ongoing strategy. So I think all the companies would be stupid. Basically, like I said in the beginning of the show, this is a really big thing they need to get on top of this whole paradigm shift. And it would be really irresponsible of them, especially for companies like Tencent, Baidu, Alibaba, ByteDance with significant distribution, significant end users, business end users, consumer end users, for them not to adopt this technology that it is very clear, um, both enterprise and to see customers are really wanting in in their lives. Are there startups equivalent to, say, for example, the likes of OpenAI and Anthropic in the China tech startup ecosystem? There are startups trying to be, right? So I think the one that has maybe gotten the most attention is the one announced by May Tuan, co-founder. He has supposedly raised, I think, $200 dollars plus from various institutions, including Tuan, of course, for building a new foundational model company. But I would say overall, it is it is going to be really tough for a startup, not just in China, in the in the US as well, unless you're extremely well funded. If you look at the model companies, right, like Anthropic or whatever, they're getting, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars in funding. And I think in China, the the investors are slightly more hesitant to be like, how are you going to be able to overcome the significant advantages that a tech giant has? So either you, either you do go independent, but you basically still have to rely on one of them as a partner. So you're effectively aligned, right, with one of them. Or it's just going to be really tough unless you have some really significant engineering expertise that that mm. puts you well ahead of everyone else. So there is one interesting question that really baffles me because it was brought up by Shai Oster from the information when we did the China review for at the end of last year when ChatGPT was just launched. Mm-hmm. I think there was this assertion that was made by Li Kaifu that China will be an AI superpower in the early 2017 and 2018 with his book. Surprisingly, mm-hmm. the Chinese tech ecosystem did not launch ChatGPT or generative AI tools first. One interesting point was that ChatGPT was started in the US by OpenAI and then every tech company, including the Chinese ones, 
is now reacting to this. I mean, does that mean the developments that has been talked about by Be Careful has been that AI efforts are really overhyped in China? Or I can take a more charitable point of view that maybe they may have the technology, but just haven't been thinking of releasing it until ChatGPT show up, like the way Google did. Oh, I think what Kaifu was saying, it's funny because this has come up a lot in conversations whenever people discuss US-China AI. I don't think what Kaifu was saying necessarily is super contradictory with what's happening now. Although I do think he, you know, to make a point was probably saying some things for exaggerated effect. But what he was saying effectively was that, you know, there's a lot more data collection in China and there's just like a lot more data being digitized, right? Everything's digital. So there's a lot more effort focused on these things, data analysis. Therefore, if we consider data as the new oil, there's a lot of it more in China. So China's ahead, you know, equal AI superpower, blah. And I think that if you look at some other fields of AI that is not generative, you could make the argument. In fact, lots of venture capitalists have made the argument to me that, for example, they believe autonomous driving is ahead in China. And that right now is maybe, let's put it in layman's terms, more traditional machine learning, where data and favorable government policies and lots of very obvious business opportunity has made it so that yeah, you could definitely say Chinese AV companies are on par, if not ahead of many in the US. But if you look at generative, I think that is fundamentally like a different different way that technology came about. And it required a lot of investment without knowing what was going to transpire, right? So I've talked to a couple of people who are affiliated with various really top AI labs in China. And I asked them the same question, like, well, why didn't you guys create this? And the universal answer was basically like, honestly, OpenAI themselves probably had no idea what was going to happen as they added more parameters or more processing power to this thing because the transformer technology is well understood. Like it was published and everyone knew about it. But if you just applied the original technology to not the 10,000, you know, A100 NVIDIA chips, right? And I don't know, just maybe a select amount for research purposes, you would not have been able to achieve the same result. And it was not obvious that the progress would be so like nonlinear. Mm -hmm. So I think that for research purposes, people just didn't know and they didn't have the I don't know if you want to call it the vision, the foresight, or maybe just the good luck to put in such a large investment. But now that the large investment has been shown to prove to have good ROI, return on investment, then I think, yeah, it's pretty obvious to me that many companies in China are taking a look and say, oh, that's possible. You know, we could probably figure that out. It's going to take a year or two. I think most people believe the engineering gap is anywhere from six months to two years. I've more heard on the two-year timeline, but this is an engineering problem. This is not a fundamental like science problem that we don't know, that we don't understand, right? We understand how to build this. It's now more about how do we go about and and build this. um, Mm. But this is also compounded by the semiconductors problem that's going on as well for China, right? I mean, I don't know whether maybe Mm -hmm. part of the reason why 
this wasn't been able to be invented was because there's a severe limit placed mm -hmm. on the chips. Chinese are probably now about two to three steps behind in terms of the hardware side and the development of AI, as you rightly pointed out, would be in probably like one or two years behind because of unintended consequences that showed up through that. Well, the AI chips people were trading on were so available, let's call it last two years. But uh, now in order to get around some of the more advanced chip restrictions, NVIDIA has a separate chip for China, right? So if China gets the A800 instead of the A100, it has slightly different specifications. It, it is not as strong, but it's also a little bit cheaper, right? It's like $10,000 instead of, I think, close to fifteen dollars for the A100. Alibaba had thousands of them. Baidu had thousands of them. It's just that these chips, again, you know, it, until OpenAI came out with it, it wasn't necessarily obvious that this is something you do, right? Mm. Just because you had these chips, by the way, which could be used to train, you know, for training and inference on other things. And, you know, these companies all have their own cloud services, so they do have clients we're also competing to use it. Same thing, by the way, I'd listen to a podcast on Google cloud people. There were, or Google AI people, they were saying the same thing. They have to justify why they are taking up these resources away from potential clients who could also be using it for something else and be revenue generating. Honestly, at the end of it, I think it was just, it was not obvious to people that this was a right business decision. Whereas OpenAI was able to, with very little corporate oversight, because there are more of a research organization. They don't have a quarterly PL. No big boss is coming to you and going, why is your Q on Q growth looking so ugly? Why are you taking away resources from our other customers? Without all of these other restraints, they were able to go after a vision and say, we think this is possible. Whereas that's just much harder to do in a corporate organization, I think, with other PL constraints. I mean, the same thing like people ask all the time, like, why didn't Google come up with it? Right. And I think it's there might be, again, I'm not an expert on the Google organization. There might be some cultural elements and whatnot, but I'm sure there are just practical business considerations. You can't let a research project, you know, take up hundreds of millions. Right. I mean, unless it's coming from the very top, like Zuckerberg and Meta with mm. reality labs, but then look at how shareholders reacted. So, you know, it's not an easy decision. I think that Google has it. There was a couple of news last year that actually helped me figure out that they did have it, but they didn't know how to release it. And that was where the problem started. That is absolutely also, if you're talking about Lambda, yeah, there's a good interview on some of the people behind Lambda on the No Priors podcast. And yeah, they had done something that was also very impressive, but it was for internal use only. And yeah, like you are, it's a very, very different thing when you're a chat GPT and you have no existing users and you just open up a beta and people can sign up for it as they like versus if you're Google and you're powering billions of searches a day, making a single change is going to impact like so many users for so many businesses, right? You can't just like all of a sudden say, hey, I'm just going to throw this in. Yeah. In fact, those people were saying that, and I don't, I think they were saying it out of goodwill, not really out of bitterness. They were like, well, Microsoft could do this because Bing has what one, one point something percent market share. <laughs> it's a really hard for the dominant, basically monopolistic leader 
to to go and do that that affects like so many people's livelihoods. And the flip side of that is that Microsoft's strategy is just like taking away that one two percent of that search revenue coming for that with ChatGPT. So I want to switch <laughs> gears to Mike Dunn's, given that they're caught between a rock and a hard place. And I think that maybe that's the reason why they may not be putting their eye on the ball with generative AI. So I'm going to first start off with the recent testimony in front of the US Congress. So my first question to you is, what are your thoughts on the TikTok CEO and fellow Singaporean Chu Soju's testimony in front of the US Congress? You know, I honestly, I did not watch a lot of it. I just watched some clips and it went pretty much as I expected. I think a lot of people thought it went a lot worse than they expected, but I think maybe they just haven't ever watched other congressional hearings before. I think it's pretty much what you would expect. Very antagonistic, a lot of nonsensical questions, a lot of trying to paint by dance in a very bad light pin show into a corner basically trying to trick him into saying certain things. Obviously, he's too smart to fall for certain verbal traps. But I do feel that it probably didn't play out great. But again, it was pretty much what I expected. So, I mean, one interesting thing that Benedict Evans always told me in the past Web 1.0 era, maybe 2.0 era a little bit, when there is a problem with a social media side or etc., the U.S. Congress can just call up Facebook and ask Mark Zuckerberg to show up in front of them and they basically rant at him, asking questions. The problem with TikTok, or maybe there's maybe some random startup in Turkey could suddenly have a very world-changing app similar to TikTok. And now the problem is who do they call to send to them to the U.S. Congress and get shouted at? And I think this problem is going to get worse and worse for them because it seems that if I were to be much more charitable, there's going to be more startups being more global, like TikTok. I think Benedict actually said that now you know what it feels like to be Europe, right? Because <laughs> it's the same thing with Europe where they can't get, I think what he said, and I don't know if it's true, yeah, yes, correct. was that they can't just haul, you know, Bezos or Zuckerberg in front of whatever the European equivalent is. And yet their users all use these products and these products have basically monopolies in their countries. So it, it's very similar. So he's like, now you know what it feels like to be us. Which is good. So my <laughs> question to this whole thing is, I mean, we know Chuseo Shi doesn't make all the decisions, right? Why shouldn't they just ask the Baidan CEO to come for the hearing instead? I know Zhang Yiming doesn't speak English, so he can always get an interpreter and then just get just be shouted by the U.S. Congress anyway. It doesn't matter. You can just play the guy just sitting in front and say, mm, 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 answer in Chinese and then it's still the same thing, right? But it will drag the hearing for another 12 hours. So. Well, Zhang Yiming is retired now. So oh, yeah. he's not the chairman or the CEO anymore. If you're talking about Liang Ruo, uh, yeah, well, I think they basically made it very clear when they're redoing the restructuring, put TikTok as its own business unit. And then back even when they were hiring Kevin Mayer, the idea is that TikTok is meant to be answerable. The, the TikTok CEO, their job will be to be answerable to, to the U.S. government. That's why they're looking for, in the beginning, with Kevin Mayer again. So hmm. American based in the U.S., right? Not a Singaporean based in Singapore, but an American based in the U.S. who has experience in a very large corporate with Fortune 500 company. 
and mm. has, I don't know if he has explicit experience dealing with governments before, but I'm sure he has more than any other Chinese manager ever. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> I would say the following, I have this really strange feeling that half the Congress people who were in that hearing probably think that Singapore was a state of China. Really? Uh, <laughs> and you know. <laughs> know it's an independent nation somewhere yeah. further out in Southeast Asia. But you know, I, like... Whether or not you think so, I know lots of my Singaporean friends don't really agree, but in I'm the Singaporean, US, come on. I know. In the US, a lot of people are like Singapore is also an authoritarian state. So they kind of just <laughs> lump all authoritarian states together. Not necessarily that you're subservient to China or anything, but they then, just like. <laughs> then I will refer them to the famous Jared Diamond article on democracies that they come in varying degrees but I don't, let's not get this into that part of the conversation americans but... are opinionated we yeah. are opinionated we're not always right just but just say yeah they just don't understand nuances but what are the chances of now u.s banning tiktok maybe i don't want to go into the thing about is it a yes or a no maybe the way i want to look at this question is what are the other scenarios looking like if they do not ban tiktok then well, I personally think that banning TikTok does not really solve any problems. I think there is a growing contingency of voices who basically feel that the U.S. needs better privacy and data security laws and that banning TikTok would not serve really the interests of the public. However, I think the TikTok ban is not really to serve the interests of the public. So... Many people have asked me what I think are the chances of a ban. My understanding had been, and I've said this like publicly many times, is that it is very difficult to ban a media platform in the U.S. Uh, legally. So there will be lots of challenges, even if the government passed certain laws. The Restrict Act which is the one that is shaping up to be maybe the strongest contender to be banning TikTok, has been written in such a way, though, to be so broad, right? It's basically saying anything coming from China, plus a few other enemy countries, could be banned or could be investigated and then banned, that it is causing the concern of other organizations such as free speech, you know, civil rights liberties, unions, whatnot. So while there is clearly a lot of people and forces in DC in particular who want to ban TikTok, even if it comes, it's going to be a very long and drawn out process that's going to be hugely challenged. However, I think that the specter of it being banned is probably not going to go away. I just don't think there will be a definitive answer to this question for the next let's call it three to five years. <laughs> That's what it seems like. I think the First Amendment does have its uses in the US system, but I don't want to go into that part of the conversation, but I'm more interested in the business part of the conversation. How does the mm -hmm. US so-called this purgatory situation of putting a ban on TikTok may affect their anticipated and upcoming IPO? Well, yes. the IPO, I think, at least from what I can tell from public records, the IPO would probably be separate anyways. So it shouldn't affect the IPO in the sense that it's not like there was going to be IPO and now with the ban, it's not going to happen. The bike dance as a collective whole going IPO was not on the table since a few years ago. And it's always been 
ByteDance China versus ByteDance the rest of the world. These were going to be two separate listings anyway. So will the TikTok ban affect the ByteDance China listing? Seems unlikely in the sense that if the new CFO they've hired that is a legal expert in all these things has it very cleanly mapped out, then, and it's not in the U.S. capital markets anyways, looks like they're looking at Asia. Yeah, I would assume that whatever happens to TikTok would not affect the IPO there. The TikTok listing itself obviously would be hugely contingent on whether or not it gets banned in the U.S., right? That would, that that represents a huge proportion of its potential revenue and, and could really delay it. However, I think for TikTok itself, the better question would be, does the specter of a ban really affect its business prospects here in the U.S.? Are businesses shying away from TikTok because, you know, not investing in the platform because they're, they might be banned? Or are creators staying away from the platform because they're thinking like, oh, if I spend all my energy on this platform, what if I get banned? Well, first of all, I think that creators have learned to be more diversified anyway in the past couple of years, especially if they get to a certain size, right? So I'm not sure that behavior is so huge. TikTok remains one of the easiest platforms to break out in because of the nature of the content, right? Like the, the ease of which you can create short videos. So I think that's going to remain for a while, that, that advantage. For businesses, so far, the ad spend is it's just so demeaned to the other platforms, right? It's it's very significant. I mean, it's in the billions of dollars, right? But it's de minimis if you compare it to like what people are spending on Google or Facebook or something like that. Maybe it dwarfs Twitter. I don't know. <laughs> but, you know, like, but basically you're, yeah, the, the businesses, I don't think they're re- so reliant on TikTok as a platform that it's it's really stopping further investment as of now. I do think in maybe two to three years, then maybe, right? When, once you exceed a certain threshold, your audience or your spend is on the TikTok platform, then you might probably be a little bit more cautious. But I don't think that it is stopping them right now, especially when the other alternatives just simply aren't as good. Like TikTok continues to really dominate with this very desirable consumer segment for certain types of products. And they're going to have most likely two stock takers, one for ByteDance and one for TikTok. So let me set, take a segue to another subject, which is Alibaba. Alibaba with the return of Jack Ma, to China and the splitting of Alibaba into six companies. Zhang Yong, the CEO of the group now is going to just go and focus on leading the cloud division. Maybe just from an outsider looking in, what is the rationale for the split into six companies? And where do you see Alibaba moving forward in the next decade? Well, the rationale for splitting into six companies is that when you have a behemoth where all the business units that are dominant, sometimes the number one player, but at least oftentimes top three player in a specific space, only do business with each other, you run into significant like scrutiny from the government because of antitrust. That's what happened with Alipay and, and financial when Alipay used to be part of, of Alibaba and it was basically only serviced, right? Like Alibaba platform. 
I think that, and, and that's what it did for a very long time. That's how it got in trouble for like antitrust and, and all these other things. So I think the benefit is that what people don't realize, the example I like to give is in our newsletter, actually on Ali Cloud. This was one we source basically a large part of our information from proprietary expert interviews. And one of the things one of the experts said about Ali Cloud was Ali Cloud used to be really off limits to all the financial sector in China. Why? Because of Alipay. Alipay and Ali was part of Alibaba, so was AliCloud. And then none of the banks who saw Alipay as one of their big competitors wanted to work with AliCloud because, like, why would I work and buy services, especially such an important service, from one of my biggest competitors? But as soon as Ant was split off and there was some semblance of a Chinese wall set up between the entities, made to be more and more independent, they're much more independent now, right? But just in the initial split off, they're much more independent, became much easier to sell to banking institutions and other financial institutions, Ali Cloud services. So there's absolutely a benefit from being split off as well, because not only will you face less government scrutiny, then you're then you can sell into sectors where otherwise your competitors might not have considered you as a solution provider. Right. Mm -hmm. For on the capital perspective, it unlocks probably a lot of value for shareholders because different businesses grow at different rates and different businesses have different capital requirements. When you have everything all lumped together from a finance perspective without going too much into it, but your cost of capital becomes this like averaged out thing. And then, you know, all your financial performances get all mushed together, right? And then you have to spend a lot of time explaining to people, what is each division doing? Well, why do that when each divisions with their very different uh, return profiles can then be marketed separately to different shareholders who are interested in that business alone? And then of course, each management being much more independent, you can sort of think of it as have a more free market, right? <laughs> Way of doing business. They don't have to consider, I guess, always how they're impacting the parent company as a whole. Mm. So I think there are lots of advantages. One of the reasons why they probably didn't do it in the past is because mm, I spent most of the time talking about the advantages of being separate, but of course, there are also advantages of being together, right? There are some overhead that you save. And then of course, lots of economies of scale. And now once you have things that are separate, then you can't be as integrated. So there's pros and cons for both. But I would say largely at this stage of the regulatory environment, at this stage of Alibaba's growth, as well as the size of the individual units here you're looking at, they're probably better off being separate. And you saw the market respond correspondingly. It's interesting to think about what has happened to Alibaba and probably in a decade or two decades time, the Alibaba company ceased to exist, but actually there's six different companies that originated on this one company. I think yeah. one question I have now as we finish with Alibaba, of all the tech giants, Tencent has relatively been very quiet. And I think that they are also under regulatory pressure, specifically on the WeChat World Gardens and the release of games in China. The question I have in, what is the likelihood that they will follow in the footsteps of Alibaba in splitting up the company? That's a very good question. I hadn't even really thought about that. I think that, well, first of all, they're not under really the same type of regulatory pressure. I think Alibaba had its 
Pan's and many, many more different pies as an independent player, whereas Tencent, for better or worse, some people did not like their investment strategy, but they were basically doing investments, right? They were doing minority stakes because they didn't want to create their own competitor in the market. That was the favored solution for a while. And then one, two years ago, all of a sudden people decided they didn't like it, (laughs) but now they might like it again. I don't know. (laughs) The market is, is fickle because again, there are pros and cons to both strategies. And I think that for Tencent, the gaming pressure is actually quite released now. I think they're, they're no longer really under too much, you know, regulatory pressure on the gaming side. For WeChat, this is really the one place where they are dominant, right? And they just have to be very careful not to discriminate against third parties, against other players. So the walled garden stuff, I mean, the main gripe that people had against them, which is that you couldn't access, you know, Taobao stuff from inside has been solved for for a while now. Mm. I actually haven't followed up to see how that has changed Alibaba's business. I'm very curious if it has. But I do think that on that respect, I don't think they are, yeah, in too much danger either because they've solved the most acute complaint. For them to break up, you mean like basically WeChat, Mm. Cloud, maybe, and then their gaming division? It's possible, but again, I think that their businesses, there's just like far fewer of them where they're super dominant, where it's super clear that they have uh, a, a good reason to be split off. Whereas Alibaba, you have like the finance piece, you have the logistics piece, right? The cloud piece, et cetera, where they are number one. Yeah, I think Tencent's going to face less pressure, but they might as well do it too. I mean, <laughs> I think it's a great idea. You know, one company that's been doing it for a while now, it's JD. JD does this regularly. They're just like, they're constantly trying to spin off. They haven't been that successful, I think, in the sense that none of their spinoffs have been marquee deals. And a lot of people might not even know they have a lot of spinoffs, but they do because it's a really great way to access capital. Mm. There was some spin-offs that came out from Tencent. Tencent Music, if I didn't remember wrongly, was actually spin-off as a separate company. I think right. even the and, book and So the they reader, do have history doing this as they well. They do. That's true. They do. They do. Less so than... And it was actually more successful than JD. Less, less fewer, I think, companies in total. Yeah. But mm. I think if your question mainly is whether or not a WeChat should be a standalone company... I would say the business decision might be might be that it should be, but if you look at Alan, I don't think he wants to run a public independent company. <laughs> so the resistance might be from other factors, you know? We looked at all the tech giants and where they are at. I think I want to come back to the main theme of the day, given the current tensions between US and China. Do you see the possibility of the listing happening for Baidu, Alibaba, and Tencent because they are all listed in the US markets, but they also have an equivalent now at dual listing in Hong Kong. Well, they're no longer under delisting pressure in an official capacity, right? So the PCAOB has come to an agreement with the Chinese authorities to be able to review the audit books in full. So they're no longer in danger of violating the SEC rules from that perspective. Whether or not they may still choose to delist, I don't think that is very likely in the near term, unless there is really like a very big change in U.S.-China relations. That is 
because I think the China side has made it very clear that they like their companies to be listed globally. What they may like, though, is that the primary listing is in Asia, in China. But to have other listings abroad and accessing other capital markets is, I think, from the Chinese government's perspective, a sign of strength. So there's really no reason for them to say, we ban you from listing abroad, as, as long as you got our permission, right? Don't be a DD, right? And, mm-hmm. and and go without us saying, giving you the say-so. So so I think that's not super likely right now. Of course, things could change rather suddenly these days yeah. and policies could be different. But even, even if so, then it would be for political reasons. I don't think it would be for, you know, it would not be in shareholder interests, right? Because again, there's no scenario in which the Hong Kong or mainland capital markets are over are going to overtake the U.S. capital markets in the next two, three, five years. In, in the longer time time horizon, we don't know, right? But in the near future, that's not happening. And if you are such a large company, then it does not make sense for you to limit yourself to a very small pool of investors. Mm-hmm. So my traditional closing question. So we have seen the rise of China tech giants, and then obviously they went through a lot of regulatory crackdown in the past few years. So what does great now look like for the Chinese tech giants in the next decade? What what would be a successful Chinese tech company now in the next decade? Because they they used to be very strong in their own domestic market without controls, Mm -hmm. correct? Mm -hmm. And that's why they were able to expand very, very much. And, And obviously in the next decade, because of all the changes that they have undergone through, what the success really means for them in the next decade for this group of tech giants, your Alibaba, Baidu, ByteDance, and Tencent? I actually think the question is really not related to China at all. I think it really is somewhat along the theme of today's topic and also relevant to U.S. companies or European ones for that matter. I just don't know them very well. I just know U.S. companies better, which is that, yeah, you have to be able to adapt, right? Look at companies like Amazon, incubated AWS, where you're at, (laughs) one of the most successful companies. (laughs) Yeah, formerly at, yeah. One of the most successful companies, right? Like in the last decade or two, you can't have to keep on reinventing yourself and, and adapt to new technologies and new paradigms as they come, whether or not, and maybe especially not if they are a natural extension of your core business, because if they're super natural extension, it might be hard for you, right? And because of innovators dilemma and all that, and, and the inertia you have in your existing revenue stream. But for any company going forward, yeah, you're going to have to adapt in it to the new technology and figure out how to reinvent yourself or how to build a completely new business. That's why I actually think it's really funny. Like people are like, oh, Jack Ma's returned to China, blah, blah, blah. You know what? I, I Part of me, I, again, I don't know him. I know we share the same last name. Some people believe we're related. We're not. <laughs> Ma's the most, is the 10th most common last name in China. Yeah, I think he probably like it's going back because and, and poking around partly because he's just like can't keep himself away from like really interesting things. And AI is just one of those really interesting things where he's like, ooh, I thought I was like done with this thing and going to my retired life. But now there's this new thing and it might change like everything I built and might change the whole landscape. I'm really curious now what's going to happen. So I think that 
those types of founders who are super engaged and who are like looking towards the future are the companies that are going to make it. It's like a kind of a wishy-washy answer in a sense, but I also think that people really underweight like this adaptability factor. And in fact, by the way, that is one of the reasons why I think Chinese companies have been so resilient and so strong, right? If you look at Tencent, like WeChat, was completely incubated, had nothing to do with their core business, really. Well, I mean, QQ, yes, but QQ was not like their main profit center at that point, right? Yeah, like, you know, really made this new billion user DAU app that like makes everything go in China, right? That, that, that was really unexpected. And people are now saying the same thing, by the way, about Baidu. I think it's a little overhyped, but I saw a research report I think today I only saw the title and didn't read it, which was like Baidu, you know, reinventing the search business into and becoming like an AI giant or something like that, you know? So basically, yeah, all these businesses are going to have to confront the the challenges of this new disruption head on and, and see whether or not they can, they can survive. Because if they don't, then the bulk of the value creation is never in what's been discovered and what's in the past. It's always in in the next new thing. I wouldn't say your answer is wishy-washy. In fact, you're one of the most precise persons that I have known for a pretty long time speaking to you on so many occasions. <laughs> Rima, many thanks for coming on the show. And in closing, two quick questions. First one, do you have any recommendations that have read, inspired you recently? Do I have any recommendations? Oh yeah, I've been like listening to this. I tweeted about the other day. I've been listening to this podcast nonstop. It's called No Priors. It's on AI. It's just really good. I listened to their latest ones with Jensen Huang, the founder mm -hmm. of NVIDIA. And yep. I actually, believe it or not, I actually got Jensen to come speak at like uh, Berkeley where I went to undergrad for a very small student club I had. <laughs> and huh? I just cold emailed him and he came and spoke. He was so nice. <laughs> I guess being a Berkeley, I think it was a Berkeley alumna as well. Yep, and uh, so, but I like was too young at the time to, you know, keep track. I was just like looking up notable alumni and I listened to the interview and I was just like super impressed with this person and the company. They're just like really, mm. really interesting. So that episode in particular, I found really inspirational, but the whole I, podcast is very good. I think you will enjoy the acquired episode on NVIDIA part one, part two, about how he bettered the company three times to get to where it is today. Yeah. He did yeah. talk, and then he did talk about how even today when the hosts were asking him about crypto, his hands got clammy because he's like, you know, most CEOs like miss the quarter by a few million dollars. They don't miss it by $2 billion. <laughs> I didn't even realize that had happened, but it was really interesting. That's right. That he was able to own up to that. Yeah. Mm. So, how do my audience find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter at R-U-I-M-A, or you can subscribe to our Substack, which is techbuzzchina.substack.com. And you can definitely find this podcast on YouTube and everywhere else, including all podcast platforms. And definitely subscribe to our newsletter monthly now. I just do key highlights on there and recommendations. So Rima, many thanks for coming on the show and good luck with your new AI startup. So let me know when it's out. Oh, it, the one I'm working on right now, it's not AI, but... Okay. Ah, <laughs> I do then. hope to be working on AI related soon. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Okay. Thank you.